Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christopher Russell, host of today's episode with Dr. Christina Griffin, a psychoanalyst, forensic psychologist, and writer. Dr. Griffin is a native Californian migrating from south to north multiple times. She has degrees in social work, religious studies, psychology, and psychoanalysis and has practiced for 25 years with individuals from all walks of life. She is co-president of the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education, a home for thinking and open discourse characterized by a willingness to engage with both ideas and experience. She is a supervising and training analyst for the Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis, She teaches clinical psychology practicum to third-year doctoral candidates at Pacifica Graduate Institute. Dr. Griffin writes creative nonfiction, fiction and memoir, where her interests are the objects of desire, poetic memory, and the tragic romantic aspects of human subjectivity. She joins us today to discuss her new book, The Regular's Table, about Hungarian psychoanalyst Sándor Ferenczi and his literati friendships. Dr. Griffin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Sure. So tell us, what um, what prompted you? What led you to write the book? I actually had an experience while um, doing some beginning reading and research on Shandor Ferenczi. And uh, that was many, many years ago, 10 maybe, a little more. But I was reading... Um, a book, a collection of essays about Ferenczi, and I came across um, a eulogy that was written by um, one of his closest friends, a long, personal um, eulogy, the like that we don't, we don't see much of them like that anymore, I don't think. They're beautiful, like little novels and novellas themselves. Um, so the, the, the good friend was, uh, had a pen name, Ignatius, which means the unknown, but it was Hugo Wieselberg, and he was one of the one of three founding editors for the New Yacht Political and Literary Journal uh, in Budapest, which was founded about the turn of the century, just before. So in his memoriam uh, for Ferenczi, I came across this paragraph, and I was really blown away. I was experiencing a couple different kind of emotions, and one of them was envy. So I'm going to read it to you, and um, you can see, and then we can talk. Many years later, I can see the two of us sat in his consulting room one Sunday afternoon when he didn't have patience. We sat side by side in silence, holding hands with our eyes closed, observing our thoughts, and then each scribbling down on a piece of paper what they had thought what had come to mind, and comparing the two scraps, we saw that what had come into my mind was associated, 
with the logic of Freudian dream interpretation with what Ferenczi had thought of. And so I believed in the transference of thoughts. And so what was going on in a small way in the Vassal Major and Ejerbe Avenue must have been going on throughout the world on a far grander scale. And today, as the new physics has engendered a new view of the world, the new analysis has engendered a new view of the person. So I read this and I thought, these two friends met for years, uh, just a little after the turn of the century in Ferenczi's office on Sunday evenings. Um, and they stayed up all night practicing thought transference. And I thought, I want to do it. I wish I, I want to have a friend. Just try this experiment. How could we do this uh, today in California? So that's what really got me going on the book uh, originally. And that's at least been about, oh, I think a decade ago when I read it. So that started the percolation of everything. And so did you, did you find someone to do uh, the experiment with? Well, I did. You know, my first thought, because I was pretty determined uh, as, I, as I thought about it. Um, the first, I thought of two people, but they didn't live in my town, not even in my state. Uh, you know, East Coast, West Coast, that kind of feeling. Those two people I thought of would have been people that would have been intrigued and not thought it was really strange or rolled their eyes. And um, so I, I kind of ruled them out in my head without asking. And then I thought, I really want someone in my town. And I think that in the context of, um, you know, not living in a big city anymore, um, I was dealing with sort of a, a boredom, ennui, <laughs> the French term, kind of a, a intellectual boredom, feeling a bit isolated. And But then there was someone, someone I had met and I thought about it more. So I started having a conversation with this man, and um, he said yes. And so we began our own version of emulating uh, Shanda Ferenczi and Ignatius uh, once a week. Um, what, what we did uh, early on, as I recall, we, we would switch homes. And in Southern California, it's outdoors, beautiful gardens. So we, one week we would meet, and for an hour, but we'd meet in silence. And we'd say hi. We could have a glass of wine, but we'd sit and we'd have blank pages of paper. And we would just, with tried without inhibition, like a free associative process, write down our thoughts and maybe try to guess a little bit or catch the mood non-verbally of the other person. So we would write what was on our minds. Then what we would do is we would hand each other the set of papers and not discuss them. And we'd say goodbye and we'd take the others home and then we'd read them. So over the years, and now we have been, I'm still doing this with this person, which I wrote about in the book. That's a, a portion of the book, uh, this, this experiment. We call it silent writing. And we rarely discussed anything. I mean, I think in the last couple of years, a few themes have come up because we meet at other times uh, for you know social or professional events. And um, we have kept this ritual up, uh, at least when we're in town weekly, and we are going into our seventh or eighth year, which is pretty remarkable. 
and we have a stack of papers on, on the other person, um, and it's quite high. <laughs> you know, we really haven't got, we haven't got, we haven't analyzed it either, but, you know, inspired by this eulogy, um, it, it's, it's very remarkable that we're still doing it, and a lot has come from it. Well, it's interesting. You said when you you know read the eulogy that there was a sense of envy. Has has doing the silent writing satisfied that, gratified it? Well, it has to a degree locally. Uh, it's it satisfied very much in terms of having, I think, the kind of friendship that really inspired the regulars table. Uh, these deep, enduring friendships uh, that's not just Shandor uh, and Ignatius, but between, you know, Shandor encouraged this um, in the, the, the coffee house society, the cafe society in Budapest, uh, just around the turn of the century and through the 1920s, I would say. Um, I, it has satisfied me. Um, it's taken its own little development and own identity. It's not exactly... Uh, at this point, practicing thought transference, but it's certainly satisfied an enduring, deep friendship. And, um, you know, the research that I began um, really included reading the novels, many novels and poetry of the uh, Hungarian friends of Ferenczi. Ferenczi's father owned a bookstore, and uh, Ferenczi was very much a reader himself, not just of the you know psychology psychoanalysis, but of everything political, anthropological, um, anything cultural, uh, literary, poetic, the arts. So uh, through Ferenczi, and what I started researching, um, names came up. I didn't know much about Hungary and uh, the novelists and the writers at the time. Um, and I th- I'm not sure the world does. Hungary, Hungarians know about this, but um, that center uh, was the most prolific, productive center in Europe, beyond Vienna, beyond Paris, in terms of the time, the timing, and how much uh, was being produced, thought, shared, and written um, at that time. It was a really amazing finding to me knowing just a little bit about that the history of psychoanalysis and literature was very much intertwined. Um, but it was also a really rich discovery that so much had gone on and, you know, who knew? I didn't. I didn't know either. And I was really thrilled. So who, um, you introduced them in the book, who are the, the regulars? Who's around the table that, that makes it into the book? Well, there is the novelist Shandor Marai. And um, he, you know, people that I've talked to said, you know, had, had, had it been known, he was, you know, up at the level of a Nobel Prize in literature. The, and I've, I've read some of his books um, that were, re, uh, they were translated in, in English, not till um, much later in the 1960s, 70s uh, and beyond. Uh, so that, you know, I, I read them um, and I was, I was really blown away. I mean, I'm just beautiful, beautiful writing. So Chandra Murray, uh, Dejo Castellani, which is a very popular novelist and poet and character. At looking at his photos, reading his books, there's a bit of, he's a bit of a dandy and uh, Oscar Wilde type when you look at his photographs and just the way he posed and uh, the remarks he would make and uh, kind of oppositional, outrageous, fascinating, entertaining. He was a 
a real uh, butterfly, social butterfly. So those two novelists, um, he, uh, Ignatius was another one. And there was another uh, writer, Caranti uh, Figuris, and he was an interesting person. Um, I think that in the popular culture, uh, one one of his articles, it was lesser known and not as important at the time, but um, it had to do, it was called Chain Links. We've all heard this expression, I think there's even a play called Six Degrees of Separation. That was he that coined that phrase. He was one of the regulars sitting around the table with Ferenczi. Um, uh, Andre with an E, Addy, a poet, and Attila Joseph, another poet. And those were the regulars, um, you know, the tight-knit group. Now, in, in historical correctness, um, most of those people, yes, they were at his table possibly at the same time. I chose my favorites, just the writing that interested me that I related to because there were so many others <laughs> that uh, Ferenczi knew, you know, he knew. And he would go, apparently, I've learned this through, you know, the my fortunate, uh, you know, meetings with um, and new friendships with Hungarian psychoanalysts who are also quite historians. Um, one of them is Judith Mescheros, who's been the president of the International Ferenczi Network and she let me in the Ferenczi house and looked in some of the archives and, you know, we've had a couple of meetings, but she's been very generous and shared with me some stories that she really knew about um, of where Ferenczi would sit with one person by himself in, in a cafe and get home at three in the morning, just talking and talking and so stimulating, you know, the, the, all the new founding, findings in physics and literature, poetry, politics of the time. So um, I got the idea uh, based on history, but what I did um, with this book, I would call it like a semi-speculation. Semi what I finally arrived at was, um, you know, imagining minds. And I think that's what we do in psychoanalysis. Um, there's a famous quote, short quote of uh, Keats. Um, I think I'll read it. I had it out for this interview um, because it relates to how I you know, formed the book and imagined the minds of this regulars group. Um, so Keats said, one of the most mysterious of semi-speculations is, one would suppose, that of one mind's imagining into another. And that's kind of what I did. Well, yeah, there's a wonderful um, part where, and I can't remember... Um, you imagine, oh, uh, Ferenczi, and you, you take as the, I guess you found it written somewhere or something, and he, he talks to his friends who did not sleep well last night, and then you would imagine an entire conversation. Yeah, I think that may be one of the last chapters. Um, yeah, I could, I'll read a little bit of it. How's that? Sure. Just a little bit. That's okay. Great. Yeah. That, that's that's the last chapter. Um, yeah, and I decided to end with this chapter because it it was a wonderful place to end where they kind of regathered, and um, so I picked. Uh, it's called One Morning in May, 1910, at the Cafe Royale in Budapest. And by the way, I've gone to these cafes. I've had um, through friends take me on tours of the cafes that used to exist, and now they're laundromats. But some really, really, you know, do exist still. Yeah, the Cafe Royale still exists. Uh, the New York still exists, and the Cafe Central still exists. For those of you that 
will ever want to go to Budapest. Um, so anyway, this morning, um, and you know, in my book, I have I'm in Ferenczi's head. It's me imagining Ferenczi's thoughts. They're based on history, but it's again, it's a semi-speculation. And then I make up the dialogue, pretty much. Uh, Ferenczi looked out of his apartment window at the Hotel Royale across the street. He began his walk to join his friends at their table, and he walked slowly, musing. I didn't sleep much last night, and it doesn't seem to matter or affect my sense of well-being today. I feel so refreshed and such extraordinary satisfaction. I am reassured that future generations can have the prospect of free and open discourse. I, myself, seem to have changed somewhat from recent talks in Vienna with Freud, which has helped me discover, actually, rediscover, something that had eluded me, the individual strivings of the libido. Now here in Budapest, I am, of course, thinking about the day's patience, one who is reading the newspapers to check for the impending danger of Haley's Comet, and the one who I had to expel a while ago, her state of transference having used the catastrophe threatened by the oncoming comet. Having made that association, I wanted to write to Freud. I put to him and will again put to friends at the cafe, particularly our circle of sociologists yesterday's experience of teaching. I was invited to give a lecture on the new Freudian theories, exploring the unconscious. I cannot fall asleep easily because of this great revolution in psychology. And in fact, I'm so aware that there is a revolution in everything connected with psychology. Well, I cannot sleep. Uh, it's astonishing to me that all of this is happening in my lifetime. These young sociologists were actually the most intelligent and understanding audience that I have ever had the opportunity to address. There were seven or eight young doctoral candidates. Truly, youth is our only hope, I wrote to Freud. They have enthusiasm. I'm bringing into the course three non-physicians, an educator, Shandor Varas, and a gifted writer, Ignatius, and the chief director of the National Theater, Shandor Hevesy. Here they are. It inspires me seeing these friends around the table. I see them laughing at something Castellani has said. They are all talking, interrupting. Maray looks intent but somber. I love all of this. You know, I, I'm reading it now, and I remember these, this is me imagining it in his mind. However... The Halley's Comet, those kinds of facts, like if you're a fact checker, but they all came out of uh, the three volumes of the Freud, Ferenczi correspondence, and the end notes in those books. So those three volumes are just, I mean, they're huge. They were translated into English at the end of the 90s, the 1990s. That's when the renaissance of Ferenczi knowledge and interest really occurred. Um, but I read especially volume one, um, all of the letters between Freud and Ferenczi. So when I write about this table and the people, those names, the people that were at the table in this passage I just read, they were actually there. And Ferenczi actually just gave a lecture to the young sociologist, and there is a letter saying how inspired he was that he wrote to Freud. You know, people wrote well, some people, I guess. I don't know if everyone did, but they wrote with such uh, intimacy and such detail and such feeling. I think there goes my feelings, you know, of, of envy that, you know, when people are passionate about something and there's a lot of aliveness and movement, and that's what I got from these uh, old letters. 
And the more I delved into this, and that's what inspired my own uh, writing and imagination about this. Well, it's um, as you were reading it, and I remember I remember reading it. The 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 intimacy really really comes through. I think somewhere you're you're either quoting or or, or summing up uh, Ferenczi, who's had this idea that Freud pursued secrets. I seek intimacy, and it's it's pretty much shot through. Um, you have uh, some intimate experiences with um, people throughout the, the book, um, one of them which is really lovely to read. Can you talk a little bit about the, the Finger of God chapter and, and oh, the okay. uncanny, the interruption, and everything that happens on that, that flight? Okay, well, that was something. Um, so, um, you know, one can make a plan to go somewhere and have some downtime, but also try to, you know, accomplish certain things and have certain meetings. Um, so I, I went for an adventure. Um, I had like one appointment. Uh, I, um, two good friends and myself, we were going to the, uh, it's a Jungian, the Art and Psyche Conference, which was held in um, Syracuse, Sicily. And this was in 2017. So we went to give a presentation. Uh, and we all talked a little bit about Ferenczi. It was about the Freud-Ferenczi split, which occurred historically in Palermo. So we had just unbelievably wonderful time. After that conference, um, I had planned to go to Budapest for a week, my first visit. So I remember saying goodbye to a good friend in the airport uh, in Rome and going and jumping on a Wizz Airlines to Budapest, not knowing anything other than a couple people had written me saying there was, you know, all the, um, the immigration from Syria, the borders of Hungary were starting to be closed. They were putting up barbed wire fence, shoving, you know, hordes of people out of the train station. So they said, you better check it out, make sure it's safe to go. But I called some of my people that I was going to meet there, they said, oh, it's, it should be fine. So I, I went um, on the plane ride, um, chapter eight, finger of God. This is when I, I call it the interruption. All my plans change. I, I had my seat assignment. I walked to the seat. I thought I had the window seat. And there was this couple, I could just tell it was really intense stress between them. And I was so tired. Uh, we got them so early on Sicily, um, I just, for some reason, I said, okay, I'll take the middle seat, and I did. But this, the man, who I'd hardly noticed because I was exhausted, um, started speaking to me. He was Hungarian, but really good English. And we got into this conversation, which I, I, I go blow by blow um, in this chapter. So something happened between us. You know, we hear about these things sometimes traveling. Well, nothing like this has ever happened to me, and I've traveled quite a bit in my life and uh, you know, met interesting people. But I think, well, I know something more happened um, by the end of the trip. I and mean, he had asked me, and I had to think about it. He said he wanted to show me, if I wanted, if I was comfortable, um, the, real Hungary, you know, the real Hungary. And he had told me a little bit about his uh, family. And um, so he, we jumped into an Uber, something like an Uber, which they're illegal in Hungary, but we somehow got to my hotel and made plans. From that, um, we had a couple meetings that week, but the first one, um, you really changed everything. Um, I had had a, a couple good nights of sleep, and I met 
this man, uh, Tibor. There are many Tibors, by the way, in Budapest, so that doesn't give anybody away. She's <laughs> like thousands of Tibor something. <laughs> it's a very popular name. Um, this was a, he was a doctoral student, actually had been in um, the United States uh, studying for a while at Stanford and came back, um, was working at the, one of the universities there. And he took me on a tour, uh, but something happened, I think, really between us, and that's what I wrote about. Um, there was just a, a, starting on the plane, there was this just, I'm going to call it the uncanny, a very intuitive connection uh, that even, you know, I canceled a few things. We just went and had, you know, really unusual, unforgettable time, which inspired this chapter. This chapter was a complete accident in the book. Um, this was not going to even be part of the book, but once I went to Budapest and learned through this man's eyes, um, and I remember asking him on the plane, he finally wanted to know what I was, and he, he knew about psychoanalysts, what they were, and I said, well, have you ever heard of Shandor Ferenczi? And he just sort of dismissed it. He goes, of course, you know, like, okay, big deal. But I didn't think it was like just a little thing. So, um, you know, in many of our conversations and places we went, I, you know, I learned a little more. Come to find months later, um, there's a very important key figure, uh, a man named uh, Dr. Andre Heinel in the history of Ferency. Uh, he is the man that um, shepherded all of Ferency's letter and correspondence. I think there are over 1,200 documents. He was entrusted to do this, and they went to first Michael Ballant, then to his first wife, and then to his next wife, Enid Ballant, and um, she entrusted them to Andre Heinel. So I mention his name, and then I'll, I'll connect it. It turns out um, Andre um, and his wife were invited out to Los Angeles uh, to give a talk, to have a salon on Ferenczi. And um, before I went in, I live north of practice and live north of Los Angeles. I emailed Tibor and I said, by any chance, it had never occurred to me, I guess, do you, do you know, have you ever heard of this man, this person? And it was just like a bolt of lightning. It turns out that Andre Heinel's father had adopted and raised Tibor, the man I met's father. They were Tibor's family's closest friends. And um, the story, the, 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 the story, the, the facts are that um, that uh, Tibor's grandfather's parents were killed in the Holocaust. And um, when this grandfather was a little child, um, Andre Heinel's father uh, adopted. And so this family's been entwined in you know the history of psychoanalysis in their own personal way forever. And I we were just both blown away. And the years go by, and, you know, I became very good friends with Andre Heinel and Veronique. Every time they would come out here, um, we presented together. Um, Hungary is a small country, and so uh, the woman I mentioned earlier, Judith Mesheros, president of the Ferenczi, and she has the keys to the Ferenczi house in Budapest. She and Andre, you know, Andre wrote his memoir. I helped be an, you know, an English-language reader for it. Um, it's all entwined. and But really, I mean, Things happen randomly, and I think I said something in the book, and I believe that a psychoanalyst says there's no such thing as a coincidence. 
Well, maybe not. You know, um, I sat down next to this man. I wouldn't have gotten to know him if I hadn't just sort of sat between this feuding couple. Well, they weren't a couple. They had, they were colleagues and had been to a conference presenting. But um, I just, one thing happened after the other. And, um, you know, I, we're, we're all friends today, <laughs> you know. So it was a gift. I mean, it, it's remarkable. It is just unbelievable to me how the history came around. Um, and Andre Heinel, you know, to be entrusted, um, he calls it the emigration of the archives, carrying um, these papers. Uh, and this was in the 80s, 1983, when he was entrusted. And then he became um, the lead editor of the publication of the three volumes of the Freud Ferenczi correspondence. That's one of his major things that he's He's done so many things in his life, and he recently died in November. Um, so uh, in that Finger of God chapter, allowing for the interruption, it, it, the book just sort of came together and sprang from that chapter. Had I not, I mean, this is what interrupted my plans. Had I not gone with this man, had I not had the conversation, allowed the interruption, took a risk, went with him, and all this would have, ne- I would have never known, wouldn't have happened. Um, it added so much richness to my life and inspiration. It made it very real, a uh, living history, you know, kind of the, the legacy uh, of this excitement and the passionate friendships. I felt like I got and, to the and, and, and six degrees of separation. You were than six. Oh, Exactly. And I, that's just always been amazing to me. You know, we all say that phrase, but it happened at that table. I don't think people, I mean, no one knows that. I did Is not it? know that until I read the book. And that's one, one yeah. of my new favorite facts. Well, <laughs> so I'm thinking from the psychoanalytic, this idea of, of allowing the interruption, which I think um, is what can happen in a, a in a, in a session when when the unconscious interrupts, when free associate, allowing for interruption and the richness and the intimacy that it can bring is is really superb. And and you wrote um, Heinel is somehow associated with this book or or helping you to 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 put it together in a little bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, he got here. Um, I'm trying to think before actually before I went to Budapest. I knew about him. I'd read some things of his. Um, that spring in Toronto, there was a uh, international Ferenczi conference. That's a, this is how it was. And I was presenting something. And I was presenting um, some of the beginning writing about the regulars table, okay? Before before I even really thought it was a book. It was a paper, <laughs> okay? It was started with a paper. I was on a panel with someone, but at the last minute, um, I got randomly put with Andre Heinel on the panel and this Judith Mesheros, the woman I mentioned. So we presented together, and it all started then when we presented, but and right afterwards the conversation. But I had written to him. It just occurred to me again, you know, I just talk about the intuition. I thought, I'm just going to write to him and see if he knows anything about Shandar Marais, the novelist, or any of these novelists. Did his family know? Because he's you know, born in Hungary in Budapest. 
Well, he wrote me back, you know, nine hours time difference. By the he, he and his wife have lived in Geneva, Switzerland. He never moved back to Budapest, but he was in Geneva. He wrote me back immediately, and he was so excited. He goes, "I know Shonda Far." Um, he goes, "Well, not it's not Shonda, but um, Marais, Shonda Marais." He goes, "My parents knew his parents. We vacation together." He goes, "I we must have a meeting together, and I'll tell you all about it." So he arranged this wonderful um, breakfast. Um, another intimate breakfast uh, in Toronto, and we, several of us went, but I mean, he had like a little place next to him, and he's a gentleman, he's one of, you know, I hear people say about him, the last of the intellectual European, you know, giants, because he's so broad, like Ferenczi, interdisciplinary, his knowledge, I mean, he was a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, but his interest extended many, many ways. So we sat down, and he he could have presided, you know, grandly presided, but he's kind. Um, And it was just a very warm conversation, but he told a story about he was a teenager, and they were somewhere uh, on an Italian terrace somewhere, could have been Sicily, (laughs) somewhere on the, uh, you know, ocean, with uh, Chandra Marais, the novelist, and his family and his parents. And Marais kind of cornered him and said... um, what are you going to do with your life? And he really meant it. And he wasn't superficially asking that kind of a question. And Andre was just like, you know, fixated on this and has never forgotten this conversation and how penetrating his look and his words were and his, the genuineness of his interest. Um, so, you know, I had this, we had this breakfast, this wonderful meal. And then Andre just started taking an interest. He totally knew what a regular's table was. Um, which, by the way, I guess I should say, it's, um, I got the title from the German word Stammtisch, which is loosely translated means a table that's reserved in a cafe for regular customers. And in the uh, Budapest coffee culture, um, tables were reserved, particularly for writers. They would keep their pens there, their coats, their medications, whatever needed. Uh, and they would gather in certain... Um, cafes and they would never have to look for a table that was their table so that's the regular's table and and on Andre Heinon knew all this kind of history intimately he just kind of got it and he also got the idea of imagination you know based on history it's interesting in writing this book like what is it what's the genre <laughs> you know some people are very strict about that and um, is it historical fiction well, maybe leaning towards that, but maybe not quite, because there's a leap. You know, there's that semi-speculation of imagination. This was something I just so appreciated about Andre, uh, his grasp of this just quickly and immediately. And, um, you know, we were able to meet he and his wife several other times when he came out to Los Angeles. And um, I think he wrote one of the endorsements for the book. Very supportive. Very supportive about the whole process. Generous. Very generous. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, the one of the themes in the book, and, and interestingly enough, in, in 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 you is this idea of migration. This book is a migration of ideas, of disciplines, of time. It's um, it just it just moves. I mean, the the sort of psychoanalytic idea of there's no time in the unconscious. It's a very present book um, taking place across time. Yeah, well, 
the the papers, uh, the clinical diary and the correspondence between Freud and Ferenczi, that went they technically went you know had an external migration, but I think that. Um, you know, there's many, many books, novels, and films about this. Uh, between the between the wars, a pre World War One and after, um, when I was doing some of the historic research of the times, you know, that this was in, um, there was a book. He's very well known historian. It's called Tibor, another Tibor Frank. His Double Exile. Um, he describes. And he has down in detail with his records the migrations of the Jewish Hungarian professionals from Hungary through Germany to the U.S., like from 1919 to 1945. It's a social history of refugees escaping uh, Hungary after the the Bolshevik-type revolution of 1919. And then their counter-revolution and the rise of anti-Semitism. So um, many of... Ferenczi's friends uh, kind of had a double exile. They went to various places in Europe or they came back, and some of them never came back. And some of them went on to the United States. So um, I think the Hungarian middle class was really torn by uh, World War One, and um, there were lots of horrible rules and laws curtailing um, the number of like Jewish citizens admitted to higher education, so some stayed and some left. But this um, this is picked up. Ferenczi talks about it uh, in letters, and you know, letters to friends, letters to Freud, a little bit in his diary. This is like the background of all the years they wrote and developed their theories and techniques, and you know, the the whole. Uh, growth and of the new field of psychoanalysis. So that's kind of the background. But I, I was really, you know, there's that. And I'm not the um, the exact historian. I mean, I'm interested in psychoanalytic history. I have a passion about it, but I'm not the actual fact historian, other than if I'm following a thread that interests me. And it tends to be more literature. So when I started reading Castellani and Chandra Marais and some of the poets, Andre Addy, I there was a theme in this book too, the migration and the fear of vanishing. You know, there's there's lots of this is the the state of our contemporary world as well. So so much was going on at that time, and um, the fear of vanishing, I think, is um, there's a couple interesting little quotes I tried to get out. Um, this is actually. They're really brief. I'm going to read if I can. Um, Dejo Castellani in his book Skylark. Here's one. Um, People disappeared as if I were dreaming. Houses flew off and away on featherweight wings. I stared at the ground. I saw footsteps they pressed. That's how I lived and bombed out Budapest. So I kind of was pulled into that idea of migration and that context of history by um, the literati, I think, like Ferenczi was. Um, and I think there's another one in um, Marais that, uh, yeah, he's, um, when people go away, they vanish, they turn to nothing, they stop being, they exist only in memories haunting the imagination. And I wrote about in this book, you know, Vanishing Haunted Me, I think that's a, um, that's something that I think about. I've thought about in my life. Um, when I mentioned, I think in your introduction, migrating back and forth in California. I'm a native California, San Francisco to L.A. And, um, 
multiple, multiple moves. Um, it's not the same thing that I was reading. It's not caused by war, but it was that that's my own personal history. I think there was a resonance um, of what it means to keep changing, keep changing cities, keep changing towns, you know, for whatever reason. Theirs was a, a serious political reason. Um, but there was some, some, in some ways I related, and that's also kind of what motivated me, I think, just, you know, we all get interested. There's something like, in, you know, as a, as a psychoanalyst, there's something maybe intuitively that we're following in a person when they're talking to us. We don't know what it is, actually. We don't allow, you know, allow the space for that to come out. Um, we may never know. But I also think it's something, you know, this is very Ferenzian. It's something that's in yourself, too. You know, it's very much about the, you know, the space in between and the, the mutuality of the the two people in the room. So um, fear of vanishing is something um, very much in the literature and poetry of this time in history that spoke to me, but also just it was moving. You know, the language, the way they wrote, um, it drew me in. Well, there's some definitely some moving passages um, um, in the book. And, of course, now I'm going to have to get all these Hungarian novelists and read them. I'm completely <laughs> intrigued. But I think about, I think I'm, I'm thinking of vanishing uh, today in, in two concepts. The, the analytic, um, you know, Andre Green and his idea of cathexis, which is the slide into vanishing. Yeah. Well, we, all, we have Amazon we can order, but, you know, usually I think sometimes we have to do a little research for some of them. They're not, I don't speak Hungarian, of course. Um, some of them, more of them are in English now. I was thinking about um, vanishing also with um, uh, the fact that this world of gathering around tables has vanished, at least for now, during COVID-19. Yes. I thought I've had the same thoughts, but we all, I think one of the things we all miss the most is get, you gather in restaurants or cafes or having a cup of coffee, um, that casual kind of connection. I know people are missing, we're missing travel also, but when we travel, you know, a natural thing we do is we sit in cafes and watch people or we connect with who we're traveling with or we connect with new people. And um, yeah, I think there's a interesting parallel. Um, and and our field, you know, in psychoanalysis and, and psychology, we're trying to offer other kinds of things on the internet, <laughs> you know, other gatherings like a Zoom, you know, a Zoom gathering when you have a, a meeting or a, a block of people or just a discussion about uh, how people are surviving <laughs> in the virus. So um, we're, I think we're really missing uh, gathering at a table for a drink, a cup of coffee or some food. I, I, I completely, completely agree. Um, there's a, uh, a, the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery here in New York, a guy named Garrett Oliver. He talks about the centrality of the table in the lives of happy oh, people. Oh, love that. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's really, he's, he's a great guy. Um, and, and in the book, you, you write that part of what you're exploring is you say the mysterious process of living among others, we need to talk and share it. And um, not being able to do it in person is, is obviously very difficult yes, right now. it's difficult. And I think the other thing, thinking about migration and change, and, you know, we're a world that there's so many movements because of politics or poverty or opportunity. I mean, we're on hold right now. But um, 
there was something for me about wanting, remember we talked about sort of my envy. I just wanted, I wanted deeper enduring friendships. I did not, you know, we have, we, we go back and forth. We, we, something can be casual and superficial, but I just wanted some intimacy over time, like building some kind of a permanency um, with a group of friends. And you know, I've actually tried to do that um, where I live. I know people do that. They have their own little salons. And um, I've tried, I have a group that's been going on. Uh, just there's four friends. We're all in the same field. Uh, and we're all very different from each other, but we meet. And we, we have a, and sometimes we talk about a book. We have a glass of wine. We have really nice food uh, indoors when it's a little cold or outdoors in a garden. But um, it's a bond that um, you make a commitment to. Now, it's not like a marriage, but it's, you know, it's a group that we want to we want a particular type of conversation uh, that's you know, non-competitive, that is free, like a forum, um, a space. And I think that's. You know, I really got the inspiration from Ferenzi. You know, it, uh, there's an uninhibited kind of conversation. Now, that reminds me, um, there, there's a couple things about the friendships uh, that I got directly out of volume one of the Freud Ferenzi correspondence um, that really I think the heart of my book is about deep, enduring friendships and what they can be like and why they're important to maintain and, you know, continue on, carry carry someone. And if I have a little bit of time, I'll, I can read them. They're very short. Um, and these, okay, there's like, they're portions of sentences. Um, Berenzi uh, wrote a letter to Freud on October 3rd, 1910. And some of these, for those people that are really into psychoanalytic history, they'll recognize these uh, portions. Um, but Finding, for me, it was finding someone, um, and then, quote, worthwhile to be interested in me. So I'm going to read just a little list. Um, Ferenczi's longing for the personal, uninhibited companionship. Two people who tell each other the truth unrelentingly. I felt the man behind every sentence of your works and made him my confidant. And it's not the end of intimacy, but rather the beginning of a real understanding. Um, and then, um, also about friendship, um, Ferenczi wrote a tribute to Ignatius. By the way, in the, the journal, the New Yacht, it's N-Y-G, I'm not going to spell it right, the New Yacht. <laughs> it's in my book. Um, it's a beautiful thing on friendship. It's just a page, but um, I got these pieces out of it because it speaks to the friendship that was, you know, caught my imagination. So it's the tribute to Ignatius. Um, understanding in the blink of an eye the depths to comprehend. The forum, whose opinion I could accept as decisive with almost blind certainty. Laying on the lawn together, immersed in weaving new thoughts. A person who still followed me on my path without hesitation. You and Robert Bernay, an artist, a painter, were like a genuine institution for me, helping to bear the exclusion by others. And we saw the world differently than we had the day before. These are just little excerpts from this tribute um, that Ferenczi wrote to his. I, I felt like Ignatius was like, he had so many good friends, but maybe his best friend. I don't know. He never said anything about a best friend. He'd hoped Freud would be. 
um, but they kind of conflicted <laughs> over the years. Um, but Ignatius was tried and true. Ignatius seemed to be able to bear and take a lot of different things, and he was a, a very broad-minded, grounded kind of individual. So he, talking to him, being with him, allowed anything. <laughs> that kind of person. Yeah, and he seems to satisfy um, the phrase we used a moment ago, which I just adore, which is intimacy over time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we most of us want that and need that. Sometimes it's hard to find that, and it's hard to maintain it. Things change. We change. The world changes. I think back to what we're in now, the contemporary with the COVID-19 People are really missing people and um, trying to keep connections going. Yeah. That's, that's, yes. <laughs> we are, we are indeed. Um, you had um, another connection to Ferenzi uh, or the family connection. The, you, you talk a little bit, if you can now, about the influence um, of Calvinism, Judaism and communion and how that all came together. Oh. Well, yeah, that's, that was another strange thing. Um, you know, I didn't know that at first and looking back. Um, so Calvinism, John Calvin's a known figure, an intellectual, studied in Paris, but he's a, got this clear-cut uh, predestination theory and so on. I know about Calvinism because my father's a Presbyterian minister. At one point, he was the head of the United Presbyterian Church in the what they call the God Box, an inner church center uh, just across from Columbia in New York. So there's Grant's tomb, and then some of the Protestant churches have their headquarters there. So anyway, I've certainly um, had that in my background. So it turns out that um, in Hungary, I don't know exactly how this happened, but um, there's a, I think it's the city of Debrecen, but also Budapest. It's considered like the Calvinist Rome, they called it. There's a tremendous, uh, since the turn of the century, late 1800s, establishing schools, kind of Calvinistic Protestant, you know, secondary, elementary and secondary, you know, schools, prep schools and churches. And it was interesting to me that um, I didn't know, I always thought Andre Heinel was Jewish because he hung with the Jewish intellectuals. Well, no, he was Calvinist. He was Ruth's Calvinist. And Ferenczi himself, he was Jewish, but Ferenczi went to Calvinist schools, which I thought was really interesting. A little known fact. <laughs> I thought, well, I didn't go to a Calvinist school. I went to public schools. But um, what might that have been like in Hungary? And, you know, I kind of asked him about that. And that's um, some of the Jewish uh, students went to those schools as well. So they were just really good schools and very strict and very academic. Um, so he had some of that exposure. But Andre, you know, I'm just personally talking with him, hung with the, the Jewish intellectuals um, from his, you know, family and through his father. That's just the heritage that he had. And um, I think growing up for myself, my father was not friends with any of the Protestant other ministers who we had in our home was the rabbi and the Jesuit priests. And it was very interdisciplinary, raised in an ecumenical way. And I think this would be the best of Protestantism. I don't know that that's happening much anymore. Um, but that, that was my heritage as well. 
just without even thinking about it, uh, being raised, and I think Andre and I had talked about this, to have a really ecumenical, to be really knowledgeable about world religions with, you know, you just, when you're raised and taught that way as a, a child and as a teenager, you just think, well, that's okay, that's normal, but it isn't these days, so that's a little bit about that. <laughs> Well, to me, I, I I brought it up. A, I remembered it in in the book, and and uh, and it just to me the ecumenical and and again, I think you you write somewhere in the book that Ferenczi was interested in all that was human, and that um, that really comes through in the book, in the regulars, what they said, what you go into the mind and 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 have them say. It's really really beautiful. What are you working on now? So interesting. I I uh, was awarded, to my surprise, it was wonderful, a um, writer's residency this year for the whole month of February in Spain. It's called the Faber uh, residency. Faber means artisan in Catalan. And so, um, but what my proposal was um, a, a novel, fiction, although I feel like it's a little fiction in some fact, um, but it's about... Um, now, Fairborn, the Scottish analyst, has a term called the tantalizing object, and that's the object of desire that so you're so drawn to, but it's just out of reach, always frustrating, maintaining its uh, power in a sense. So I'm writing about um, a woman uh, who kind of is a nomad in her mind, but also travels. Uh, a woman later in her life who falls in love, she's a, I will say cisgendered, but straight woman, falls in love with a gay man. And the adventure begins, and it kind of spins her into an odyssey where she has to have a lot of conversations and ends up with, you know, struggling with this, the concept of the tantalizing object, and that she needs to find an antidote or something. So that's that was my proposal, and that's what I uh, am working on gradually, and that's what I did when I was in a beautiful part of um, uh, northern Spain for February. And I was with um, a group of eight people from all over the world. I was the American, and Ireland, South America, Greece, Finland. I made some really good friends, and I've, I'll tell you, it's one of the be best experiences, as well as doing this book and you know, my trip to Budapest, but enriching motivating um experiences and conversations again we we there is no structure other than you have your own beautiful room and you're there to write and you don't have to be it was not a factory they just want to give the you know the artisan time to write and create so we had our breakfast together two-hour breakfast you know conversations then we could write take a walk and then we had our dinners and very much like a regular table this group, we were fortunate, really. There's a lot of great connection. And, um, and I think I made two really good friends that I will, you know, be in touch with for a long time. So that's what I'm working on. I don't really have an exact title, but it's something like uh, In Pursuit of the Tantalizing Object. That could change. As I know, as this book changed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously, we look forward to that, and uh, and uh, you'll come back and join us uh, to talk about tantalizing objects when it's published. That's fun. That's good. 
Great. Well, listen, thank you uh, so much for, for joining us um, for the book. I think we need Ferenzi always, but certainly right now. And uh, again, thanks for coming to the program. Oh, thanks so much for hosting, Christopher. Enjoyed.